following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open up your Bible or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in uh, the closing chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 5 today. We'll look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5 today, and then next week uh, we'll finish 1 Thessalonians. This is your first week here at Community Gospel, and you're thinking to yourself, what's in the other four? Um, Well, you missed those, and um, we'll just have to talk later, I guess. I'm just kidding. They're all online. You can go online and, and, and get caught up. Um, communitygospelchurch.com, you'll see the messages section. All of our messages are on there. We keep those on there um, so that we can get caught up. Or if you hear something you want to hear again, that's there too as well. Um, when we study a book of Scripture, uh, we want to go back and see kind of where we have been so that we can get kind of a running start on what's transpiring. So 1 Thessalonians is written by a guy named Paul. Uh, He is with a couple of people. First of all, he is with a guy named Silas or Silvanius, one of his church planting partners. Now, for those of you that don't know Paul, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He comes to know Jesus Christ on a road to Damascus. Jesus actually uh, uh, visits him face to face and asks Paul, why are you persecuting the church? Paul doesn't have a good answer, and so uh, he turns his life to Christ. And um, Paul starts to plant all of these churches, these believers who are gathered for the sole purpose of edification and evangelism. Those are two big E words in regards to church, but edification is just the building up of others. By the way, church, we need to do better at this. We need to do better at encouraging one another as we see the day of the Lord approaching. And then uh, evangelism is just a sharing of the faith. If you have um, the Holy Spirit that resides in you, by the way, Jesus does not live in your heart. I hate to break that to you. Um, The Holy Spirit does. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, he says, I will give you a new spirit. And that is the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you cannot shut up about Jesus. You just have to talk about him. He is on the forefront of your lips all the time. And that's what's transpiring here in the church of Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. And so all of these believers are gathered together, and they're talking because of this church that Paul and Silas have planted. And there's another uh, individual with them. His name is Timothy, who is learning about Paul and his ministry and Jesus at the same time. So Timothy is kind of being mentored by Paul. It's also good to have somebody you're mentoring. See, Christianity is not just a vertical uh, relationship with God. It's horizontal as well. And so all of these Thessalonian believers are uh, striving to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord. They're evangelizing, they're edifying, and as they do, guess what happens? Persecution, problems, and pain are present. Go figure, right? I thought the Christian life was supposed to be easy. It is at the end. (laughs) So all of these guys are facing persecution, problems, and pain, and Paul's whole purpose of his letter is to encourage these believers to press on. 
There is a time that is coming, Paul says, where God will be the righteous judge that he is and he will vindicate all that is wrong. Every wrong that has been uh, done to you, God will repay that. You just keep being passionate for Jesus and watch the Holy Spirit work in your midst. So Paul's written them. He's encouraged them. He's talked about his uh, ministry to them. And then last week we talked about how he um, outlined the kingdom that is going to come. And now in these verses, Paul's going to talk about this thing called the day of the Lord that's going to come like a thief in the night. And if you lived in the 60s or 70s, I believe it was in the 70s, there were some really creepy movies that were released about this. All right. I watched one of them when I was seven, and I'm still having nightmares to this day. (laughs) And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you are okay. Don't worry about it. So Paul tells the believers gathered at Thessalonica, don't be afraid. The day of the Lord is coming. You just need to be prepared. And it goes from the church of Thessalonica all the way to the church of community gospel today. So how do we prepare for the day of the Lord? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's look at the first three verses. Now, it's obvious that some of the believers were asking Paul good questions. And here he answers a good question. When is Jesus going to come back again? When is this day of the Lord going to happen? Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Labor pains will come upon them like a pregnant woman, and they will not be able to escape. Whoa. Well, first of all, let's unpack what in the world is this day of the Lord? What is Paul talking about here? This is a new piece to the Thessalonians. And basically what he's doing is he's saying two things. Number one, there's a time of Christ's second coming. We talked about that last week. That's called the rapture or raptiro in the Greek. The New Testament's written in the Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So if you ever hear us say the Greek says or the Hebrew says, we're giving you word context. And what Paul says here is he says, there is going to be a time when Christ comes back again. That's the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And then the second thing he says is the day of the Lord is a longer period of history after the rapture leading all the way to Christ's millennial kingdom. So it's not a day per se, it's a period of time. Now, two questions. Number one, let's address the first one. When will Christ come again? And the church said soon. Okay, so glad we got that figured out. We can move on. Look how loving he is when he talks about end times to believers. There is not a spirit of condemnation in his voice. He says, brothers, he addresses them like family. He says, all you need to know is it will happen. Now, Jesus makes this clear if you look on the screens, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, uh, as well as 43 and 44, these are Jesus' words. He says, no one knows uh, when Christ will return, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So you should what? Be ready. You know he's going to come back again. Be ready. 
Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. It's going to happen. That's the important part. And when Jesus does come back again, ready for this, everybody's going to know about it. So, with Jesus coming back again, the second question is, well, what is this day of the Lord? That's verse 2, the first part. The day of the Lord, as we said, refers to a future time when God will intervene directly and dramatically in our current world more than he did at the first advent. Jesus comes quietly the first time. The second time, not so much. The second time is an awakening, if you will. Many Old Testament prophets speak about this event. Isaiah talks about it in chapter 13. Joel talks about it in Joel 2. Zephaniah, who nobody reads, talks about it in chapter 1. By the way, the Old Testament prophets are riveting. You should read them. And they say that this will be a time of judgment and blessing. The day of the Lord begins immediately after the rapture of the church when Christ comes back. And it ends with the conclusion of the millennium. And all of this, if you want to study it by yourself, because we do not have enough time to unpack this, is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 19. And my wife would love to answer all those questions for you when you have them. Just kidding. We talk about Revelation all the time. So that's a little joke between me and her. The day of the Lord, though, will come as a surprise. Look at the second part of verse 2. It will come like a thief in the night. Now, this is an unexpected coming, not necessarily at night. Some people look at that verse and they say, oh, Jesus is coming at night. He could come in the morning or the afternoon too. All right, so don't uh, take those times out of the equation. Like a thief in the night. So knowing the day will come, we would ask, okay, well, what happens to start this day of the Lord? Is there any signs that we have that kind of reveal what will happen? Like, what should we look forward to to see if uh, Jesus is coming back again soon? Well, yeah, Paul unpacks this in verse 3. Notice this, because this is interesting in our context. Number one, Paul says Jesus is coming back when everything seems peaceful and secure. Hmm. The day of the Lord will begin when this world's conditions appear calm, not catastrophic. So many people think Jesus is coming back. The world's getting worse and worse and worse, and surely Jesus is coming back again. Don't be concerned about the storm. Be concerned when we get in the eye of the storm. So Paul says, this will happen when things appear to be calm. Things appear to be secure. Now, there will be a peace treaty that will be signed at the seven-year covenant that is predicted in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So be very, very cautious about when people start to sign peace treaties. When you see if those things happen and transpire, those when our ears start to perk up. We should keep our ears and our eyes towards Israel and the things that are going on there. Be very, very concerned about what's going on with Israel all the time. And when it seems peaceful and secure, look at the second part of verse 3, destruction will come. So instead of peace and security, disaster comes on people left behind at the rapture. If you want to, you could circle the word disaster, which means destructions. And it's also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 
It says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's the same word, disaster, that Paul uses. It is God's wrath being poured out. I've said this a lot. Bears repeating. God has two hands. Both of them are lifted up right now. One is calling people to himself. The other one is holding back his wrath. At this point in time, both those hands will drop. No more people will be accepted, and his wrath will come forward. I know that messes with some of your theology. That's okay. Paul illustrates both the unpredicting suddenness and great personal discomfort that this world will experience. He says it's like a pregnant woman's labor pain. For those of you that had children, you know all about this, right? We don't need to unpack this, but you're sitting at the dinner table, and you're having dinner, everything seems fine, and all of a sudden you go, oh, and that oh means we have to go. <laughs> and Paul says in the last part of verse 3, the third thing, there is no escape from this. God's wrath has been building. It breaks forth. The world cannot escape this wrath, just as a pregnant woman cannot escape labor pains. And some of you women tried, didn't you? You're like, anything but, right? The choice now, Paul says, is one that every person must make now. And let's keep this passage in context. He is saying, if you look at this letter, because he's encouraging believers who are being persecuted for their faith, go back to the decision that needs to be made. Will I accept Jesus and be on the side of his blessing because the blood of Christ covers judgment? Or will I be out from underneath of that umbrella and experience the wrath of God? So right now, where we sit in history, in this time, we have to ask, have I accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? And not just with our minds, not just with the knowledge that I understand the gospel, that God has permeated my whole being. I have let the Holy Spirit in. He is Lord of my life. And then the next question is, if you are a believer, and this is funny because my mom used to say this all the time, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? Is this what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Now, 2 Thessalonians is all about laziness. And I think it's, it's a good connection to chapter 5 because essentially Paul would ask, are you going to be lazy or are you going to work for the Lord? Heaven isn't our only goal. He essentially tells the Thessalonian believers we have work to do here on earth until our death or the return of our Savior. There's work to be done in evangelism and edification. So prepare for the day of the Lord. Look at verse Four. But you, now he's talking to believers there, okay? You, you as a believer, you, verse four, are not in the darkness, brothers. Still that term of endearment. For that day to surprise you like a thief, it should not come as a surprise to you, Paul says. Notice what Paul does. He takes the doctrine of the day of the Lord. And he outlines what it looks like to be prepared for the day of the Lord. He doesn't want the Thessalonian believers to be in the dark, which I think is kind of a play on words. That's Paul being funny, by the way. You ever had a professor try to be funny? Just doesn't work. Paul kind of did that right there. It didn't really land. But he says, listen, this is how we live knowing the day of the Lord is coming. Look at verse 5. He says, for you, 
are all children of the light. You're children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Church, I need to read that to you again. Because we miss this. You are not children of the dark. You are children of the day. You are children of the Lord. So basically what Paul says in verse 5 is he says, let's be children of the light. Believers are supposed to live differently. They're supposed to talk differently. They're supposed to walk differently because they have a different spirit living within them. See, there's a difference between day and night. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. It says, for once you were full of darkness. But now, after coming to Jesus, you have a light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. Now, that's like a no duh, right? But just because you know this doesn't mean that you apply this. So Paul's looking at him and he's like, you got to live Like God has told you everything you need to know about a second coming. And you should be ready for it. In Acts chapter 1, for example, verse 11, it says, Someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. So be children of the light. Now, this is a question that I'm going to ask Jesus when I get to heaven. Because I'm so curious about this. How long did those disciples wait after Jesus went up? You ever wonder that? As a totally side note to this sermon, but man, I think about it all the time. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two hours, two days. Does one of them look at each other like, hey, I'm kind of hungry. You think Jesus is coming back again? You think he'd come find us if we go get something to eat? Yeah, maybe. If I study the scriptures, I don't think they waited that long. I think they said, hey, before he comes back, let's go find some more people so that we have some more people when he comes. Now, light and darkness are really interesting, and day and night are really interesting. They're used in Scripture. They describe the difference between good and evil. They describe the difference between God's people and the people of the world. For example, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So light represents what is good, what is pure, what is true, what is holy, what is reliable, And darkness, on the other hand, represents what is sinful or evil. And if God is perfectly holy and he's perfectly true, he alone can guide people out of sin's darkness. Now, the interesting thing about light is light is also related to truth. So light exposes good or bad. So in the darkness, good and evil look alike. But in the light, they are clearly distinguished. So just as darkness cannot exist in the presence of light, sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. So what are you getting at here? Children of the light, or God's children, have nothing to fear regarding the second coming of Christ. We are simply to be responsible and ready, walking on the path of light. So what Paul says is, he says, if you are the children of the light, which you are, Knowing that Christ is going to come back again, you should always be ready at any time that he could come back right now. For example, look at verse 6. He says, so knowing all that, don't be asleep. Wake up. He says, don't be asleep like others do, but let's keep awake and let's be sober 
For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So he says, you should be on guard. Thieves usually break into homes at night when everybody's sleeping. God's people should be on guard, not asleep. So believers should stay alert and be clear-headed. That's the word sober. Constantly expecting Christ's return at any moment. There is no time to play with sin. There is no time to fall into temptation. There is no time to doubt. You just remain close to the Lord in daily fellowship with him. It's a constant walk with God. Now, if you want to circle the word asleep, it's really kind of an interesting word. In context of 6 and 7, it is used for a moral indifference. Worldly people, non-Christians, are not waiting for the Lord. They don't care about His return, so they get drunk, which is the opposite of being sober. That's a metaphor for moral indifference towards a holy God. Sober means self-controlled. It implies being ready rather than being muddied in thought. If unbelievers are people of darkness or night, their lives are focused on their own pleasures and obsessions. They're not alert. So we're called to be just the opposite. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying exactly what we just sung a few moments ago. What are our hands wrapped around? Are they the things of this world or are they the things of the word? We don't belong to the darkness, Paul says, or the night. Now, the crazy thing is, the Thessalonians already knew this. They were doing a fantastic job with it. So that's why Paul doesn't elaborate a whole lot. The Corinthians, on the other hand, are struggling. So Paul outlines a ton of things for the Corinthian church to stop doing. So if you're interested, if you want some Holy Spirit conviction in your life, this week I want you to go and read First and Second Corinthians because it cuts through like a knife. Now, Paul uses a favorite illustration to kind of illustrate this in verse 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let's be sober, let's be disciplined, let's be awake, let's be alert. I think this is a good case for sobriety, by the way, but that's a sermon for another day. And he says, now it's interesting here, Paul must have unpacked the armor of God for them at some point. I don't know when he did it, but it's interesting that he talks about two pieces here that uh, are a part of a, a whole. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, We're under the umbrella, if you will, of Christ through faith. He has destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. And notice there he says, he is our Lord. So this is kind of fun because this is kind of like masculine talk. He says, you should live like a soldier. Now, believers who live in the light know life isn't about personal pleasure, It's about loving and serving the Lord and maturing in our relationship with him. In that love and service, we must be armed. Now, Paul unpacks this all the time. Romans chapter 13, Ephesians chapter 6. He tells Timothy in chapter 6 of the first letter that he wrote him, and then he unpacks it again in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 4. And he says, we belong to the day, not this sinful dark world, and we arm ourselves for action with self-control. 
The key there is discipline. You discipline yourself to put this on. So let's expand on this just a little bit about what Paul says in regards to how to be protected. You are armed and ready like a soldier with the armor of faith and love. Now, like I said, he probably wrote this uh, to them at some point or talked to them about it, but he unpacked this in the church, uh, the letter to the church of Ephesus, or you know that better as the letter to the Ephesians about the armor. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, you have it. It says, you have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, and the feet of peace, or sandals, as Ephesians says it. And as Paul looks at those armor pieces, he starts, first of all, with the breastplate of righteousness. Why does he look at that? What's so key about the breastplate of righteousness? Well, he says, believers, you put on the breastplate of faith and love. A Roman soldier's breastplate protected him from the neck to the waist. Those were the most vital organs. Somebody asked me one time, what if you got a spear to the head? (laughs) Well, you have a helmet for that. But the Romans, as well as many New Testament cultures, believed that this was the center of somebody's whole existence. Everything happened in this general area. And so what Paul says is, he essentially says, faith and love are your most vital organs as a believer. Faith in Christ will protect you inwardly, and love for people will protect you outwardly. Those two traits can't be separated. If you believe in Christ, you will love other people. That's key. Then he goes into the helmet of salvation. And Paul also says that believers have a helmet or a hope of salvation. That's why he says in verse 9, we have obtained through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is something we look forward to as a deliverance from God's wrath to come. God has not destined us for wrath. So, in putting on the full armor of God, believers have a supernatural armor for spiritual warfare, but it has to be put on. I have a dear pastor friend of mine, love him to death. He legitimately gets out of bed and puts on the full armor of God. I'll show you how he does it. He gets up. He says, Lord, thank you so much for the salvation that you have given to me by faith in Jesus Christ. I put on that salvation today, that helmet of salvation. Help me to use that for your glory. Give me wisdom and discernment in all things. Heavenly Father, thank you for faith and love, the breastplate of righteousness. I put that on today. I pray that you protect me. Help me to know who I am in Jesus Christ. Give me the faith to believe that today. Help me to love other people as well. Protect me with the belt of truth. Puts on the belt of truth. Says, help me to know how to distinguish good from evil, light from darkness. And then, Lord, I put on the sword of the Spirit. I put that in my hand. Help me to know when to say something and when not to say something. When do I take the sword out and tell people what the word of God says? And when do I put it away? God, help me to have a shield of faith. Protect me in all things that I am going to go through today. And wherever I walk, help me to be a man of peace. Can you imagine what would happen if we did that every single day? If you just walk through the full arm of God every single day, they said, God, equip me for the work that you have for me today. That'd be amazing what would happen. Now look at verse 10. I think verse 10 is really interesting. He says, we have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ 
Notice how Paul constantly reiterates the gospel. He says it to him over and over again. It's like they forget. Don't forget that he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, that's a really interesting wording there. And I don't like this. I'm just going to be fully transparent. I, I just I detest this passage of scripture, and you'll learn why in just a second. Because it looks like in verse 10, there's a contradiction. Paul says, whether we are awake or asleep. Now, those words awake and asleep are used in verse 6. And what they mean is spiritually alert or spiritually lethargic. This is why I don't like this. Paul's point is that believers are assured of eternal life with Christ, whether they're spiritually watchful or not. How many of us hate our lazy neighbor? When we look at that and we think to ourselves, man, I'm doing all this work for the Lord and Gary doesn't do anything. Paul essentially says that whether you're spiritually alert or spiritually lethargic, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are saved from the day of the Lord. But, so that, that, that gets to me, right? But that's grace. But Paul's point is, why would you want to be spiritually lethargic? If you know the salvation that has been given to you and you are full of the Holy Spirit and you know the King is coming, why would you want to be spiritually lethargic? I just learned uh, the other day about a couple of guys who met the King of England. And before they met the King of England, they went and took etiquette classes. They're like, we can't mess this up. This is so important. And they took etiquette classes to get to know the king of England. And as they took etiquette classes, they kept failing and failing and failing. And one of the guys looked at the other guy and he said, it's okay, we're just practicing right now. But when we see the king, we'll know exactly what to say and how to say it. And I just thought to myself, what a beautiful picture of what the church should be like. Right now, we're just practicing. We're practicing our righteousness. We're practicing our acts towards men. We're practicing what it's going to look like when we get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. I don't know about you, but I don't want to leap into heaven. I would love to just walk into heaven and realize that it's very, very similar to the life we live right now, just without all the sin in the world. Somebody asked a famous pastor one time, what do you look forward most about heaven? Do you look forward to the golden streets? Do you look forward to uh, uh, meeting Paul? Do you look forward to meeting Peter? And he said, I look forward to the fact that there will be no sin. That's what I look forward to. So Paul says, wake up. Look at verse 11. He says, therefore, what are we supposed to do with all this? It's the same thing that he just told us last week. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. He's like, wake up. Keep practicing. The day of the Lord is going to happen. Arm yourself. We're going to live with Jesus forever. And here's the problem with the American church. We're like, yay. If we're going to live with Jesus forever, it should cause us to have so much catalyst for change. Christ laid down his life for us. Why would we be spiritually lethargic to that truth? The Thessalonians were doing a fantastic job of encouraging one another. So Paul just says, keep doing it. Keep building one another up. You're going to be prepared for the day of the Lord. It's a good word. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your truth, Paul's words that were penned to us, to your church, on the importance of being mindful of the day of the Lord. God, we need so much encouragement. We're like sheep. We go astray. We forget your truth. We forget the fact that we're going to live with you forever. And some of us think about that and we think, oh, and we repent of that, Lord. As we sung just a few short moments ago with no instruments, I was thinking about how amazing it will be to sing with hundreds of thousands and thousands and millions of believers all with one voice. Singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who's come and come again. God, we look forward with a great rejoicing to every promise that you have made us is going to come true. That you won't leave one stone unturned. And Lord, some of us have grown spiritually lethargic. We become obsessed with the world. We've become apathetic. So would you reignite our spirits? Fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Equip us with the full armor of God to be diligent in your work. To be heartbroken for the people who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Help us to open up our mouth and boldly profess the gospel that you have given to us. May we never be ashamed of that. And Lord, turn us from negative people into people, sons and daughters of encouragement. Where we talk about this all the time. And we lift one another up with the fact that you are coming again soon. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And all the saints say, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.